0: Hi, y'all. I'm Marisa Zapata, and this is the podcast where we examine homelessness by talking to researchers and experts, who of course include people with lived experience of homelessness, to understand what we're missing in the headlines and sound bites. In each episode, we will help clear up misconceptions about homelessness and to answer what it would take to prevent and end homelessness in Portland and beyond. I'm an associate professor of use Planning at Portland State University and director of PSU's Homelessness Research and Action Collaborative, a research center dedicated to reducing and preventing homelessness, where we lift up the experiences and perspectives of people of color. here with Todd Ferry, an officially licensed architect who is a professor at Portland State University. He is part of the Center of Public Interest Design and a founding or co-founding member of the Homelessness Research and Action
1: Collaborative.
0: How you doing, Todd?
1: I'm well. Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, today we're going to be talking about Todd's work around what we call alternative shelter, and I'll let him talk about what that is, with um, a good deep dive into the village model. We've recently produced a report at ATRAC with partnership with CIPD, the Center for Public Interest Design, that evaluates and then produces a how-to guide about all thing villages. I like to start off my interviews talking a little bit about who you are, how you got into this work, you know, the bio.
1: I'm an architect. I took kind of a circuitous route to get here, and I operate in the realm of public interest design, and that is... Design and architecture uh, aimed at serving traditionally underserved communities and addressing really challenging problems uh, using the power of design and and tools of architecture. I often describe it to students as architecture that doesn't presuppose buildings, because if we wait until we until a building is required just to do architecture, then we're not part of the big policy, big structural conversations around how we can affect real change for the betterment of our communities, or the betterment of our planet.
0: So I I need to pause you here because you're starting to sound like an urban planner and I am an urban planner. So how is what you do different or is it?
1: I think, well, there's a lot of overlap, but with public interest design, it's still using the tools of architecture. So looking down to the level of construction and site and an individual building and thinking about the ways that we live and dwell.
0: Y'all, I'm going to admit right now, I have a little bias against architects. There is like a fierce territorialness between architecture and planning. And as a planner, and Todd can talk about this and attest to this, I am always a little skeptical of the architect.
1: And I'm going to say that you're more than a little skeptical of the architect. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and that it's 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 a strong skepticism. Um
0: I had some bad experiences. You yeah. have like reinvigorated me to be open-minded about the architect.
1: Well, I I'm glad to hear that. I appreciate it. But you know, in terms of uh, how I got uh, here, so I I studied philosophy. Then I was working as a musician and and actually a a carpenter and a and kind of in in the realm of social work for years. And ultimately combining those things of kind of thinking about carpentry and and social work, when I realized that there were architects out there doing uh, impactful things and weren't trying to serve client need, but address community need. And then then suddenly uh, I thought that this this is something I could get really excited about.
0: Where did you start learning about, um, about this other path within architecture? Because most people I know, Go into architecture, wanting to design buildings, and then kind of discover through coursework this other way of thinking about architecture and having an architecture practice. But it sounds like you actually found out about this before you even decided to go to architecture school.
1: Yeah, that's right. And actually, while I was at while I was studying philosophy, I I had a mentor who took me under her under her wing. Her name was Dr. Leoba Moshi, and she was the director of UGA's African Studies Institute. She took me on a master. Where is
0: what is UGA? Is that what
1: you said? Oh, U- University of Georgia. And so she, we went over to Tanzania, and spent some time there, and made a lot of friends. And they asked if we could help with this school that they wanted to build, uh, expanded the school. And I was um, young and dumb enough to say, "Sure, why not? We'll, we'll start a nonprofit and do that." And so. So that's what we did. And I worked with the African Studies Institute to start this nonprofit. And we spent a couple of years over in Tanzania building onto this school. And it was through this this process of thinking about, all right, so we're putting these these buildings in. What if they were arranged this way or what if they could be more like this or what if we could think about them in a a different way? But I didn't have any training or, or tools to. To design, you know, I had some ideas, and thank God nobody listened to them because they were terrible. I hadn't, I hadn't been trained. But I started to think about, all right, there's this going to there's going to be this big change in the built environment that's going to impact people's lives. So how can we be really thoughtful about it? And while I was over there, it was actually the people who were building in the traditional way that just that taught me carpentry. That's where I learned to do, you know, hand tools and stuff to do carpentry. Uh, but that's what got me thinking about uh, could this be more? And I started to learn about about groups that were working all over the world. I saw a documentary on PBS that was, uh, it was like a Brad Pitt narrated documentary that talked about this guy, Sergio Paleroni. He was doing this work in Mexico and all over the world. And so that was uh, really compelling. Of course, now, uh, for those who don't know, Sergio is a colleague of ours at Portland State University.
0: We are um, talking today with Todd Ferry from Portland State University, and he is sharing insights into alternative shelter. Let's pivot to what the Center for Public Interest Design is.
1: Yeah, our center, we operate a lot like a nonprofit design and architecture practice within PSU School of Architecture. So we take on real world projects to address community needs, working with community clients. And so those things range from thinking about disaster response, preparedness, and resilience in places like Haiti or Ecuador post-earthquake. And so we'll take students and do design-build projects there. We've had collaborations with the Crow and the Northern Cheyenne and Southeastern Montana for years. And a lot of our work locally focuses on uh, issues here, which include uh, a range of things, but, but housing and homelessness is a huge area where we put our attention.
0: The tie to homelessness with your work is around alternative shelter, and I think this is really interesting because this lines up with with the center's kind of origin story. Todd was getting a lot of attention for his work around villages in particular, and Greg Townley, another co-founder of the center, and I were very concerned about the village model and what that meant and what that would look like. And so when we were talking about founding the center, we knew that it would make no sense to not work with you and Sergio, but also we didn't know how you might enter the conversation. And it was really amazing. It was really amazing that you were excited to even think about the questions and concerns that we had. And then we had to realize, well, we also have to be open-minded that this could be a really powerful and helpful model. So I think that that is really important to, to thinking about at least how we've come together To create an entire research project around villages. But before we get into that, I wanted to start just a little more broadly with this concept of alternative shelter. What does that mean to you?
1: A lot of people use alternative shelter in different ways. To to me, I think that the most general way that we can look at alternative shelter is through a, a recognition that traditional congregate shelter models aren't working for a lot of people. And so, Um, What it's trying to do is to kind of use the mechanisms at the city level and through different kind of funding and social support streams to give people shelter. And then if we can look at new ways to do that on a spectrum from traditional shelter to all the way up to transitional housing, then I think that we can open up a lot of unexplored areas.
0: And when you say areas, you mean like literal geographic places and so forth. Or do you mean that conceptually or both?
1: Both. Both. But but certainly conceptually, I think that there's a lot that's been unexplored. In in Portland, I think the village models offers a whole lot of, of really interesting, amazing opportunities to learn from and to, to study uh, because we have the oldest village with Dignity Village founded in 2000.
0: Why don't you start with talking about Dignity Village? How did that even come up? You're talking about the oldest known living model of a village. What was the What's the story for Dignity Village?
1: Great question. And just an acknowledgement that my involvement in villages began much later in like 2015 or 2016. So what I'm sharing is what I've learned over the years. I think
0: this is such an important note for listeners. Today, it's definitely a lot of perspective as more traditional researchers, people who've dug in to uh, particular projects and ideas who weren't necessarily involved with the work. Uh, Todd will talk about some of the work he's been directly involved in. And we just want to acknowledge and um, thank everyone who has shared their stories with us and to recognize that that we might make mistakes and those are on us.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. So Dignity Village... Really began as activism led by people experiencing homelessness and just through really thoughtful, beautiful and kind of genius ways of protesting the way that people experiencing homelessness were being treated uh, started to demand something else and so. There were a few things that were happening at the time. Street Roots started the Out of the Doorways campaign, which was protesting the way that people experiencing homelessness were uh, being, being swept along and declaring they should have a right to stay where they are and form communities. And then through strong leadership of houseless activists, people like uh, Ibrahim Mubarak and, and Jack Trafari and a whole bunch of groups, they started to make this act of declaring their rights to stay together as a community public through uh, what were called the the shopping cart parades and so every time that they would get swept by the police they would uh, make a show of it go you know go all together across portland's bridges and pretty soon every time this would happen more and more people would join and it would get increasingly attention to the point that it was getting national attention and eventually it was through that and it was through support of housed activists that allowed them to really start to form. And from an architecture point of view, architects were getting involved at that point. People like Mark Lakeman and Tim Morrill and people who worked in the built environment like Eli Spivak. And we're really thinking about this question of what role can design and architecture play to support a movement like this.
0: And so now Dignity Village is on property out by the airport. Is that accurate?
1: That's right. It's on, on a property called the Sutherland Yards property, and initially it, it split into three. This is the one that has lasted since about 2000, and they have been a self-governed organization ever since.
0: And they are pods, like we're going to talk about with um, the pod villages in our study. But they've been around for a while, which, you know, I think speaks to some of the concerns around village work and the alternative shelter models, which is that These are supposed to be temporary and serve as, you know, basically a patchwork because of what you mentioned, the issues with congregate shelter. But the ultimate goal is supposed to be housing and housing quickly. And yet we're finding that that actually hasn't happened for people in Dignity Village. And at this point, for some of them, it's a choice, right? They really are happy where they're at. They don't want to move into housing. But, you know, the village model is still there the village is still there. And so as Portland expands villages, are we actually just creating a secondary substandard housing element for people experiencing homelessness? So that's always been my concern.
1: I get that concern. I think that, I think we should continue to be advocating for funding and policy that is permanent housing. At the same time, I you know, my feeling is, and I'm wondering your take on this, is that if it's people experiencing homelessness forming a community for themselves, and they want to think of that as housing or their long-term base, and then there are ways that we should be supporting that. It doesn't mean that that should become the bar to which government or social agencies try to reach in terms of what investment looks like and housing looks like, but I think that if people can define it for themselves, then that's a whole different conversation.
0: I agree. I think it's really different. That's what I try to say, like this idea of You know, when is somebody making a choice because they really see no more options versus when is somebody making a choice because it is a true preference? And um, I think the other thing that, like, always concerns me is that, you know, you always hear these stories about people who don't work in homelessness, like going up to somebody who's experiencing homelessness and just asking, would you move inside? And that person is like, no. And that becomes, like, the story, whereas... Some people are saying they don't want to move into traditional housing because of trauma in apartment buildings, poor management, because they're afraid of being evicted. And so I think that part of it is also a failure for us to meet the expectations and needs that someone might have. And if we actually try to address those and someone is still like, no, like this pod in this community is where I'm at, I do want to support that, and yet I don't know how we support that and stop the government from simply mass producing pods and putting them out and saying, "Congratulations, solved."
1: Yeah, I think I think that it needs to be. I think we need to be looking at it from from both angles. I think if it is the government doing it and it does feel more top down, and they're looking at as a solution, then no, that they're not providing housing, and they shouldn't be thinking of it that way. When following the state of emergency on homelessness in Portland is when I first started getting involved in the village movement. I was invited to be part of this group called the Village Coalition in 2015 because the uh, state of emergency was declared. And some people were saying, well, if there are close to 4000 people uh, who are unsheltered on a given night, then let's find warehouses that can have uh, cots for 4000 people. And a lot of folks were saying, well, that sounds like an internment camp. That sounds like a nightmare. Uh, They were inspired by what Dignity Village had done and saying, we we want things more like this. And so a group called the Village Coalition formed that was largely led by people experiencing homelessness and a new village that was just forming called Hazelnut Grove, another self-governed village with amazing activist leaders. You know, one thing that was really fascinating there was that as they were talking about forming this village, it was all about community. It was all about it wasn't about this choice between pod and permanent housing. What they were talking about was we want to live in a way that is connected in a way that people, even if you have permanent housing, you're disconnected from one another. And so the focus was really around this ethos that was started at Digny Village, which is it's about uh, supporting community and and being together in that way. And so I think that the, this is an important part of the conversation around villages that often gets overlooked and certainly by municipalities that are, only looking at it as non-congregate right individual sleeping units with shared common facilities and they're not looking at these other pieces which are shared community goals and agreements and agency over place and social structures
0: so i don't know if we've actually talked about this todd but i think it's also just an important lesson around how we both develop you know market rate housing across the board but particularly affordable housing which often ends up in the form of apartments we could still have community space. We could still have cooperative-led apartment buildings, right? We simply choose not to. And we often, because of the pricing mechanisms and our unwillingness to pay, end up removing the best kinds of community spaces, right? And I mean, I just think that, like, if we, if part of what we want to help promote is that beauty of community, because I, I totally agree with you, it's there, You know, why aren't we looking at cottage cluster models for affordable Mm -hmm. housing if we think we can't actually replicate things in apartments? And, you know, I'm just thinking about, like, my house backs up into a dirt road, one of the unimproved roads in Portland. For listeners, yes, Portland has a lot of unimproved roads. It's really funny. And there's a whole history to it that's embedded in the land use history and annexation policies. But it means that, like, I've got a road that's pretty short. Full of potholes that hardly anyone drives down, and all of the neighbors talk to each other. It's very organic, but it, because we can just hang out in the the street and talk to each other, <laughs> so mm-hmm. I just I feel like you know that I that part of village community wanting to support that when making more villages, and also maybe challenging our current development practices to think about community and how we could be doing that better.
1: Yes, yes to all of it, and in another time, let's talk about how cars ruin everything. <laughs> but the transit,
0: I mean, the transit listeners just cheered.
1: Yeah, they, they ruin everything. But the um, but I think that you know in this in our village research uh, and how to guide, we interviewed so many people with direct experience living in, designing, building, or operating villages. And we definitely heard over and over that villages don't necessarily have to be the pod model, like they were studied, that it could be in a motel, it could be in an apartment buildings, that really the, the social aspects of the shared community agreements and goals and the agency over, over the physical and social aspects of the place were, could really happen anywhere. But it isn't It isn't uh, looked at nearly deeply enough in, in most of our housing approaches.
0: So wait, what we're saying is that people prefer to live in places where they actually have autonomy over their lives and the ability to live in community with the people around them.
1: Shocking revelations, right? Oh,
0: my God. Oh, my God. It's almost like, I don't know, like a productive homeowners association, because there are some out there. We call them neighborhood associations here. I mean, they're not quite the same thing. But, you know, I just, again, I think that we we set up and we're so stuck in this punishment model against poor people, that we deprive them of these basic things that you're finding. Mm-hmm. And I just think that it's really important that we always highlight that. Uh, this is Marisa Zapata, Portland State University. And I am uh, here with Todd Ferry today from Portland State University as well. He is at the Center of Public Interest Design and a co-founder of the Homelessness Research and Action Collaborative. Can you talk a little bit about what it meant and what it looked like for you to deeply engage in the creation of Villages? You've been really engaged early on with Hazelnut Grove and Kenton Women's Village, correct?
1: I wasn't involved in the creation of Hazelnut Grove. And Hazelnut Grove really served as uh, friends and advisors and experts on on the village model. And so they were very helpful in the early stage. And so what that looked like for me was as folks from Hazelnut Grove were advocating for more villages in the wake of the state of emergency and asking, you know, could you help with pod designs? And the answer is, sure, you know, the kind of smaller design, that's kind of doable. But let's also look at the bigger picture of of what it looks like to have these in the city, what would it look like to have city support and not have them be in a precarious situation where they could get swept at any time. And let's bring the architecture community uh, into the conversation with that. And so uh, working with folks like Mark Lake been involved in in Dignity Village and others, we invited the architecture community, basically firms to sit down with folks from Hazelnut Grove and uh, other folks in the Village Coalition to learn about what villages were like to visit them and then think, all right, so if we are going to design new pods or new ways of thinking about villages, how can we do that thinking about how they could be beautiful, healthy, well-made and the structures that would allow them to uh, receive investment and legally operate. And ultimately that resulted in big charrette that resulted in teams forming. We had, it was called the pod initiative.
0: Okay, pet peeve here, architecture man. What is a charrette?
1: Oh, right. A charrette is an intense period of design that brings together different stakeholders toward a common goal. And in this case, the common goal was, uh, this was a four or five hour period of design. It was held at Mercy Corps and we were all collectively looking together. What would it look like? How can we come up with new typologies for pods? Uh, what, What might village and in this case, in 2016, look like? And then how can we go forward together?
0: Just to clarify, it's a design workshop.
1: <laughs> I mean, if you want to say it very quickly and simply, sure. It's a design yes, workshop. Yes, yes, yeah.
0: in language that everyone understands.
1: Got it. So, and I don't know, the listeners can hear this, disdain for, for for architects right now. Um, because the, y'all
0: use words like charrette.
1: I'm making a note to try to slip in words like interstitial very soon. Um, another, <laughs> another favorite that drives people crazy. So the, so this, you know, to their credit, we have an amazing architecture community who was just on board to say, all right, we'll we'll give this a shot. And in just two months time uh, from this design workshop to uh, from just two months time, they all designed and built pods together and we displayed them uh, downtown, the North park blocks and the PNCA parking lot as a way to invite Portlanders to come out and say when when we're talking about villages, when we're talking about pods, this is what it what it could be like. This is what we mean. And I think that having something tangible as opposed to just talking in the abstract was hugely impactful. Everybody has opinions. Everyone says, "Well, I've seen this, or I've thought about this," but but I think having something tangible to say, no, like when we're talking about it, we're talking about this these specific ideas, that made a difference. And so they were downtown for about three weeks and ultimately during that time that they were on display the city identified the uh, lot in the kenton neighborhood as a potential site for a village and so a team began pursuing that as a potential village so that that team included joint office of home and services this our center for public design the village coalition kenton neighborhood association the Catholic Charities who would operate the village and and more, this team that was kind of quickly forming to come together to explore it as a pilot project, which ultimately by, by June of that year ended up operating.
0: It's been really exciting to see the early work continue. And then the Kenton Women's Village has actually now been located on two different sites. Mm-hmm. But I think that, you know, as opposed to like what you might hear about conventional displacement language, I feel like the, the move was very thoughtful as well. And, you know, y'all took a lot of that opportunity, right, to think about new uh, pod models or mo- new designs, right, from the site.
1: Yeah. And we learned so much from the villagers and from those involved in that village in terms of how to improve it, right? If it is a pilot period, we don't want to just think we're good, we're done. No, really, what works, what doesn't. And there was a lot that didn't work. There's a lot that could be improved upon. And... Ooh, tell
0: me some things that didn't work.
1: Oh, there was a lot. And when I say we, I should say that the team that was working on the moving to the second Ken Women's Village, it included people like SRG Partnership, you know, Scott Mooney from there and and his team, the Home Builders Foundation, Anderson Construction, LMC Construction. So, you know, a really good group of people in conjunction with Catholic Charities and the Joint Office and others. But some things that didn't work- Catholic
0: Charities was coming in to to manage the site long-term.
1: That's right. That's right. So- Some things that we learned and, you know, in architecture, we would talk about these things as post-occupancy evaluation and, and, you know, what are, what's working, what's not, how you can enjoy it. But this was, this was kind of ongoing, trying to learn from, from how this was operating, how can we make it better? One thing I'll say, for example, is I was hearing that some of the pods at the Kent Women's Village were having mold issues. And. I couldn't understand the ones that were, they were saying had mold issues. They were really well detailed. I saw them being built. I went and checked them out and I, I didn't understand where they could be leaking because this was the assumption. And then I spent, you know, a full day on site when it happened to be raining and seeing people come in and out to use the common facilities and they were getting soaking wet and they were going back in. And sometimes they would, they would change clothes. And what was happening is that folks were taking off wet clothes, putting them in the corner, like you would do. Uh, changing. And then it might be a week before you can get to a laundromat. And so ultimately it was just this buildup of wet things and moisture in the pods because the village didn't have laundry facilities. And so, you know, of course it seems obvious in in hindsight, but then it's okay. So when we're, when we're thinking about it, we definitely want to be efficient with villages. They've got to have a laundry facility, at least the ones that, you know, I would contribute to, because this is, um, this is going to help with overall health and, and the quality of the pods. Right.
0: This is a good point to emphasize that, you know, villages can be aesthetically very pleasing and they can be safe for residents, but the pods are not actually homes or houses, right? And meaning that, or apartment units, meaning that they do not have bathrooms, interior bathrooms, they do not have interior kitchens, and they are a pretty small living space. And, and I think that what you and the people you work with have done that's been quite amazing is emphasize the importance of common spaces, common facilities, and, you know, not porta potties for bathrooms, right? Like actually having a dignified place to use the restroom, but also just wanting to remind people that you can do a lot, it still requires people to go outside to get to a bathroom.
1: Thanks for bringing that up. And also for more context is that what we're talking about today is really concentrated on on Portland and certainly those within our village study, which were pods. There are well over at this point, 115 villages that people would call villages of different kinds. And some of them do have uh, different levels of utilities and pods and, and different kind of approaches of permanence. So Yeah, but when we're talking about them in in Portland, they have limited utilities. They might have electricity, but they won't have water or sewer hookups within the pot itself. Those would happen in a common facility.
0: So any other things that stand out to you as things that didn't go right in that pilot phase? I think that this is really helpful for people who are trying to think about making their own village, like what are some paths that you all tried that you're like, yeah, this didn't work. Or like you said, it, it seems self-evident that laundry should be included, but not necessarily for the reason that you're talking about. Right. And so, mm-hmm. you know, like what else, what are some of the other things that came up?
1: Well, there's, there's a lot. So I'll I'll focus it on ones that I was specifically involved in. So I've worked with students on designing pods, uh, prototypes and so evaluating other pods that existed or our pods, we were, uh, and we found this in the village uh, research outcomes that there was a strong preference for pods that weren't so boxy because they can often trigger institutional trauma. There's also just kind of less individual spaces that you might carve out for, you know, a more private bed area for a desk or for uh, for storage or things like that. So there was a strong preference for those uh, that weren't so boxy even though boxy often can mean greater square footage right so there's a there's a trade-off there and so there were certainly findings like that materials that can that can manage being moved very very well they could they're very durable in that way so often in architecture we design we design for permanence and we don't often think about the exact way that these things are moved uh, but having had several pods that designed and built with students that got moved in different ways. Then uh, watching the, the forklift put these straps around the roof and the walls and watching this just get really cinched and just holding your breath. It really, it really changes one's perspective on on how exactly these should be designed in, on the detail level.
0: Wasn't there an addition of, was it electricity or fans or heat?
1: This is a great point. That's right. So in some of the, um, In the early pods, we had worked with other faculty involved in the building sciences here at PSU. And we did things like blow door tests, which basically talk about how airtight a building is and how it can hold heat and how insulated these buildings are and can body heat them up. Because, you know, if they're compact enough, it's a tight enough envelope, exterior wrap, then it could really, you know, then the body could theoretically do that. Except people were complaining a lot about being cold and it didn't it didn't make sense if you were just looking at data. But then again, uh, if people have to go to the bathroom two times in a night, then you're basically having this big heat flush every time that you opened up the door. And so it didn't really matter how efficient that the envelope was unless there was an active heat source, people were going to be cold. Yeah, there was an interim period at the, fir- at the pilot period of the Kent Women's Village where hot water bottles were used. But that's insufficient. The new one, all pods are fully electric. They have radiant heating panels uh, and others. And, and that's really appropriate for anything that a city was going to invest in.
0: I think all of these details are so important as we see. You know, there was a really powerful article about some of these villages, similar villages in California, where they were talking about basically the pods are functioning as jails. Right? They're, they're basically the size of a prison cell. And without much more in them, right? And I think that that becomes, you know, it's the concept sure is looking positive in some places as a form of shelter, but you can also do this in a terrible way. And so I think that these, the amount of thoughtfulness that y'all put in from the start, and then the continuation of tinkering with things to make them as comfortable as possible for people who are experiencing homelessness, This is Marisa Zapata and I am here with Todd Ferry, a Senior Research Associate with the Center for Public Interest Design at Portland State. Turning a little bit from this, but I think very consistent with this idea of how do you learn lessons and, and build on practices, you were the driving force behind the idea of creating a how-to guide. Greg Townley, the other researcher on the project, and myself were like, "We have much nerdier questions and da 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 da. Wait, we're going to tell people what to do with our research? This is horrifying!" Mm-hmm. And I mean, not entirely. I I can tell people what to do, but it just felt very uncertain, a more uncertain space for me given what I was working on. But you really had this amazing vision for the how-to guide. Um, I wonder if you could talk about why this was so important for you.
1: Yeah, well, I think that there's a reality that often research that happens in academia very much stays in the realm of papers published in obscure journals, uh, is hard to access, and isn't kind of meant for general consumption. And it was important to anything that involved villages, particularly that leaned heavily on the wisdom of villagers that it could be useful for just a broad audience. And so our goal with it became to let's make the data, the collection of our information as clear and transparent as possible. And then the recommendations be really led by those with direct experience and not with those with the loudest voices or strongest opinion, which is often how, you know, decisions get made. but really those who have have direct experience with it. Now, as we've said, I've been involved in in village design as one of team members at at the CPID and with many other partners. But in this case, interviewing village designers and village builders, approaching it as though I was starting from scratch was incredibly helpful. And I learned a lot about projects I had worked on specifically by uh, just coming at it From an outside perspective and listening to those voices, because you can work in parallel with someone but have very different observations and and takeaways. So uh, that was a real treat to get to spend time to kind of critically evaluate a project in general, but then even those, even some that I'd been involved in.
0: For anyone who has not seen the guide, we all, of course make sure to include links everywhere to take a look at it. It is absolutely gorgeous. And you know sometimes you'll hear the critique of planners and designers who are committed to producing beautiful documents, but there isn't the substance backing them. And then of course, you know people who might be writing substance, whatever that means, can't visually communicate in a way that matters. And I, I am so proud of this product because I think it does both. And I think it really, you know, there's graphics, there's very specific ideas around design, there's comics, right? There's just an amazing array of material to be as accessible, I mean, to be as accessible as possible. And that was one of your commitments, right? Visual accessibility, but also accessibility to the public to have access to the document. Why was that so important to you?
1: Because increasingly these are these are happening and they're happening and unless we can make make it clear in terms of those people who have lived in pods and who uh, are involved in it here's what they have to say about it how can we make it better uh, then we're, we're replicating potentially the same mistakes right so like we just talked about with Kent and Women's Village, you don't want to just sit there and congratulate yourself on what what happened. You want to think, no, what what can I learn from it? How can you make it better? And then not stop there. It still it still has to evolve. So what? So then, and then the next iteration, what can you learn? I mean, design is an iterative process, and that needed to to happen here too. So in some ways, I think being able to leverage this great history that Portland has with Dignity Village and Hazelnut Grove and others. How can it inform other other cities and certainly trying to help municipalities do them better because these things are just becoming increasingly common?
0: It's always tempting to want to, to put this kind of project into a book, right? And for similar reasons, we wouldn't want to have a formal publisher that then you had to pay for access to the book. Mm-hmm. At the same time, those are things that are prestige and academia, right? Mm-hmm. Like we chose to self-publish it and that is the right decision because the goal is to get the information out there. But also like for academics, it's like, okay, well, we chose not to do this other path. And so what does that mean? And how do we withstand those pressures within academia to just be like, no, we're going to, we're going to do the thing that's accessible.
1: Hmm. It's such a good question. In this case, it felt like, you know, one way to look at it is that is that the village model was created by people experiencing homelessness and by activists, and this wasn't created in academia. And people like me who are in academia were just contributing small pieces to this movement and trying to think about how to, how to transfer some of the power of the institution of the university and the students uh, to be able to support some of these efforts. And so, you know, in good faith, the research and how-to guide would need to do the same thing. It would really need to honor this history and that work and be able to continue to be a benefit to those who are experiencing homelessness and want to build villages for themselves in addition to uh, municipalities who, who are exploring these.
0: That is such a great and powerful summary of what it means to actually do work with community instead of extracting from community. This is Marisa Zapata from Portland State University, and I am here chatting with Todd Ferry, who is also my colleague at Portland State. So we talked about villages a lot. Can you talk to me about other forms of alternative shelter that you all have been exploring?
1: One great thing about working on this within a school of architecture is that I get to work with absolutely amazing architecture students to to envision and come up with with new ideas for uh, both village models, but then uh, going beyond it. And in some cases, students are are challenging it and thinking about new things. Uh, I had the great pleasure of getting to collaborate with the Anchorage Museum a few years ago and uh, worked with HRAC and, and Marta Patenny in particularly on that exhibit. And students uh, in my studio generated a range of ideas to try to think about particularly alternative shelter models that might be appropriate in cold weather, but that could also, of course, be appropriate with, with climate change. And uh, is really just a reminder that we have not tapped the bottom of, of possibilities. So students generated things like what if our transportation Stops converted into spaces for people experiencing homelessness, or what if the sides of buildings had infrastructure that folded down to support people in in safe ways, and they could access utilities? Or thinking about how uh, over time uh, villages could evolve, or uh, all all sorts of of different ways we could think about that. And that was just in one design studio. And so these are things I often bring into architecture studios as a way to both expose students to these issues, to work with partners who are experiencing homelessness and service providers who work with houseless folks, and then to really emphasize that all of the most important pieces of architecture are present in these things in terms of all architecture is political, all of it is social, and it operates in this in this realm of uh dystopian capitalism and sometimes and and oftentimes has this ability to make great change and in a single pod all of architecture is is there from from threshold to how we dwell to the way light enters a room to physical comfort to the way that we might interact with guests there to the way that we work in a community and so so we explore these things and, and students are just a constant reminder of we have more work to do. There's more things, there's more things to explore. And we can continue to learn from people like uh, the folks at Hazelnut Grove on uh, who have become experts in this area.
0: Whenever I hear about your work, it always makes me feel very comforted that y'all are out there thinking about these things. And just so sad that you're having to spend time, instead of focusing on the end of homelessness, figuring out how to keep people alive. And comfortable while we as a society allow them to live outside. I don't mean like allow them as in like they would be punished for living outside, but allow them in the sense that we have not been willing to address our affordable housing issue. And it just, it's always, it's just a profound conversation, right? Like we're talking about using benches and figuring out ways to convert benches so someone might have a more comfortable, safer night of sleep. Instead of, you know, how do we build the most amazing affordable housing development that brings in these concepts of community and love? And it's very hard for me sometimes because I'm like, this is amazing. I'm so glad you're doing this. And I hate that we have to do it.
1: Agreed. Agreed. And I think that it just it looks very different when people want to create an alternative form of lifestyle for themselves versus if it's because of just a failure on a governmental side, which for the most part it is. But to your point, some things that are reasons to be optimistic or some things that I'm excited about is I'll be spending the next year exploring. I don't think we've talked about this. (laughs) I'll be spending uh, the next year trying to create a pilot project for an exterior rocket mass heater bench in the public realm. That Which was
0: a lot of words. I got to was, exterior it was, and bench. It was a lot of words. words.
1: Essentially, it is a, a very efficient way to warm up the thermal mass of of a bench. And in this case, it would be in the public realm in order to keep people warm through contact with that bench um, and hopefully create an amenity in, in public space. Uh, Portland's one of the only places, one of the only cities where they can exist in residential atmosphere, but they have haven't uh, made their way into into the public realm but I think I think as a pilot to explore could this be a useful amenity uh, for folks is exciting as you're saying should we need it no we shouldn't it's a, it's a shame that we need to create something like that to keep people safe and warm but at the same time I think we I think we have to do it
0: i would also again one of the million things that we talk about that would serve everyone
1: mm-hmm. i would
0: like a warm bench to sit on when i'm waiting for the bus That sounds great to me.
1: That's right. Well, and this is such a good point. I think that there's so much that we should be designing in our public spaces that support everybody. And of course, that includes people experiencing homelessness. Uh, Instead, I think that often the default response is, well, we can't have public bathrooms. We can't have warm benches. We can't have spaces that are nice to be because it will attract people who will want to be there, Uh, which is insane. Like, so, if you create good spaces, people will want to be there. and they should want to be there. And if they're experiencing homelessness, then they need that space more than anybody and fine, good. But instead, I think that we're creating we're creating just a lot of hostile architecture, and it's it's a huge mistake, and it's just making a much less welcoming city for for everyone. So, good spaces are good for everybody.
0: I mean, this is the thing that I always find fascinating. Like the amount of time and money we'll spend envisioning a public space. And then adding in this component of uh, controlling crime in the space and deterring bad behaviors, where, y'all, I'm doing air quotes by the way, where that is code for people experiencing homelessness,
1: people who are poor, people of color. It, it, it's such a good point. We need a diversity of of voices if we are really going to design for everyone. We make quite an effort in our village research and how-to guide just to emphasize that people who've lived in villages and worked on villages they are uh, they're experts in this uh, in this field, and and villagers need to be part of of future efforts, and they should be compensated for that expertise uh, and really part of part of design teams.
0: Well, I only have one more topic, and it's a big one, so we can maybe just talk about it for a couple of minutes, and maybe you'll come back and talk about it more. We have talked about the right for people just to take over space and do what they want with it.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: I mean, maybe this is called subversive architecture, like you're just going to go out and say, is this anarchist architecture? I I mean, I'm for it. I'm for it. Like. People should just claim their space. I think I told you I was out interviewing people in one of the encampments, and they were like, unsanctioned encampments, just to be clear. They were like, you work at PSU? And I'm like, yes. They're like, can you just bring me a pod and drop it off? And I was like, really? Like, why can't I just bring a pod and drop it off? It seems like a very reasonable choice.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I think that if... If there are people experiencing homelessness who identify an underutilized piece of land that could really support themselves as they form community, then they that should be supported. And I think that the I think that you'd find all sorts of reasons for positive outcomes for them as as people for the way that it could impact uh, the surrounding community uh, in the way that they find social support in the way that that people can can heal and have the kind of community that we all want. Obviously, often those sites are set aside for good reason, but it also means that we're probably not building on them. That we're, they're, they're probably not going to become housing, so they're not going to stand in the way of that. So so really, how can we think about these and support the kind of uh, insight that, that folks have into that? You know, one anecdote that we have in the Village Research and How-To Guide talks about, The process of the Afro Village identifying a site um, for a max reuse car, so potentially the Afro Village hub, which would provide services, and it's something they're pursuing. An amazing team working on that. But the uh, there was a site that its leader, Laquita Lanford, had identified as a really good potential site for this, and working with partners over at BPS, they heard the
0: City of Portland Bureau of Planning and Sustainability.
1: That's right. And so they entered in all these different factors and these different things for to do a GIS site analysis that cre- basically created a spreadsheet of 1,600 sites throughout Portland, potential areas. Once that spreadsheet was created... And all of the different kind of preferences for what kind of site would be desirable were put in. It's Out of the 600 sites, it was that there were two sites and one of them was the exact one. The Oh, my said,
0: God. I love this so much. I
1: had, had said from the beginning, like, this, this is the site. Like, this is what we should be looking at. I love that story. So the, the partners at BPS are, are amazing and they were doing due diligence. But you know, there is something to this recognizing that those people who are doing the grassroots work, they know it, they have this innate knowledge of place of, uh, of what's going to work for community. And I think that, you know, our city, but certainly all cities would do would be wise to just listen to that and support that's happening. And yes, that includes folks who want to take over on new sites.
0: Todd, why don't you tell me what people like about villages? What's it bringing people to this model?
1: Well, I think it's for people who are uh, living in villages or or wanting to form a village because they're experiencing homelessness. I think that this idea of community and and safety and having a place uh, of one's own, how regardless of you know what that timeline is for themselves to be there or transition is, uh, is really appealing. I think that the public is really fascinated by villages because it seems such a logical solution right so if people are you meet people and they're experiencing homelessness and and you can think okay uh, i might not be able to address the massive issue of homelessness in the united states but i can create a space for this one person right like a tiny a tiny house in a way and it is and these and the pods the way that they're done in portland they're small enough and they are and the barriers low enough to them that they can really be done by a group of of five or so people who are really interested in, in helping out. And so when you start to to do that at a larger scale, it becomes really rewarding. So for example, the team that worked together to create the second in Women's Village invited the construction community to participate. And so 21 teams formed and all offered to build and donate pods, uh, which was amazing. And so you had these people who were actively involved in directly addressing homelessness uh, for individuals who might not otherwise be stakeholders in it. And so I think that there's this really important element uh, where people can, can actively be uh, addressing a solution that is uh, weighing, on, uh, weighing on all of us, right? And so regardless of whether it's villages or other things, I think thinking collectively about how we can be more active in directly addressing homelessness uh, as a society, could have huge benefits.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's so, like, people just like to do things that they can conceptualize and put their hands around. I mean, when I start trying to explain why housing is taking so long, you can just see people's eyes glaze over. They're like, this is really complicated. And they're right, it is. And so it is great to keep people engaged in this discussion and bring, you know, some people together in community. I also think that, you know, what one of the things that you're highlighting by asking the question of what do people like, right? We're also thinking about, well, what do people not like? Mm-hmm. And one of the things I was really pleased to find when we did our survey as part of the study of people who were neighbors to the village was that you know people's concerns, namely around resident behavior, went down dramatically after the village was sighted. A significant number of people did not actually know about the village ahead of time, have concerns about the village coming in, or were actually more concerned about the villager's safety and acceptance. And so I think that, you know, in when we hear about villages being cited and neighbors coming out in arms, it is true, but it is a very small segment of the neighborhood. And I just think that's important to highlight because there are people who are living in the neighborhoods that want to go out and be part of creating these communities. The last thing I wanted to ask you about, and then I'll invite you to, to share any parting thoughts, is that where is where is the village work heading? What do you see as the, the next steps for the village movement?
1: I think it's clear we're going to recently see villages instituted across the country by municipalities, uh, not necessarily by people experiencing homelessness. Uh, although I think that, that we need to keep those doors open, right, for self-governed villages to, to really form themselves and thrive. Unfortunately, I think that we'll see a lot of them that are only taking one piece of villages, which is the non-congregate, individual sleeping units with shared comm facility and not really put much effort or attention into making sure that there is this a sense of community and a sense of agency for those for those who live there. I think that we'll if you include what people you know safe rest villages and others I think there'll probably be at least 10 new ones in Portland in the next few years and we'll see them around the country. I don't think that we'll uh, you know personally I am an architect. I'm a designer. I want to see iteration and learning from what we're doing and not get comfortable in, in past solutions and always try to work with those with lived experience to do better. And so so I think that hopefully we'll start to see villages in, in our region advance and learn from those that are happening around the country uh, and different things happening there. Locally, I think there's some work that excites me that the Afro Village is doing. And in that case, the Afro Village, again, they're looking at how how the village model can result in permanent housing. And so what that looks like is beginning with uh, recognition that often the most expensive part of a village is the shared common facility. So what if we begin with a house, single family, multifamily, doesn't matter, but it has it has things like the bathroom, kitchen, laundry, living. And, and it's got individual rooms that could be served as sleeping units. And then pods could be added over time. But at the end of a certain period, there was uh, an investment there in house and land that could then go to go to permanent housing. In this case, the proposal is it would go into the hands of Black collective ownership with the Afro Village. So I think things like that are, are really exciting. But it'll be... I can
0: interrupt for a second. One of the things that I think is so important about what you're talking about, the Afro village and the space to learn and innovate, is that the the villages that we studied were largely villages that were started by and serving people who were white, right? Not exclusively, but over the set of villages, that's really what we were seeing. And Laquita Lamford and her partners have really taken the model and innovated it for a way that worked for them and it's really actually interesting because it starts to show up if you're thinking about the like housing and urban development continuum of homelessness services and structures it ends up in a whole different category of transitional housing more. and so it's really quite fascinating how those categories don't really describe what's happening but how just having that space for innovation can really create something by and for people who are black All right, Todd. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for joining us on the Understanding Homelessness Show. We hope to have you on here again.
1: Thanks so much. It'll be my pleasure.
0: All right. Take care.
1: That was Todd Ferry with Portland State University talking about the Village Research and How-To Guide. To read a copy of the report,
0: go to pdx.com edu/slash/homelessness/slash/a/village, or you
1: can go to understandinghomelessness.org to find a copy of this episode and links to recommended reading, including the Village Guide. Thank you so much for listening.